All right, good. Looks like the same people that started the last class, so you guys are the faithful. Hopefully it'll fill up, right, as we go. Let's pray, and uh, we will get started. A little stuffy in here? Yeah. Yeah? Uh, You know how to click that, turn that down a little bit? Yeah. All right, let's pray, and we'll begin. Well, Father, uh, we do um, thank you this morning, Lord, and uh, we know it's afternoon, but Heritage Grace time, we call it morning. Um, We thank you that uh, you've made this beautiful day, and thank you for the rain, Lord. Thank you for uh, the marvel of your creation and the wonder of it. We just pray, Lord, that you'd bless our time here together, Lord. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, and uh, by your Spirit, Lord, we pray that you'd fill our minds and our hearts and, Lord, our lives and help us, Lord, to be uh, better students of theology and better students of your word. Help us to rightly divide your word uh, so that we can have a, a a proper understanding of what Scripture teaches and so that we can apply the Bible right and that we can apply the Bible to our lives in a way that's honoring to you and in a way that's beneficial for our soul. And uh, Father, we just ask that you bless our time. Be here with us today. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, and we ask that you would just... <clears throat> Uh, bless our interaction, the teaching time, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, um, we are uh, still dealing uh, with the doctrine of revelation, and uh, what I wanted to talk about today is um, hermeneutics, and we'll probably be on this for, uh, for a little bit, hermeneutics 101, how's that? It's more non-threatening, right? They deal with some basic stuff, right, on on, uh, the whole concept of hermeneutics. And uh, so what we want to do here is, uh, I'll point out a few things here, but um, basically, um, what is hermeneutics and how would we describe that? First of all, does anybody know what the word hermeneutics means? Anyone? Anyone? Josh? Herman who? The word uh, hermeneutics, if you look it up in a dictionary, it just simply means the science of interpretation. The science of interpretation. Okay. Most, if you look at dictionaries and stuff like that, most of them are going to say, especially dealing with scripture. Okay. So hermeneutics, even though it just simply means the science of interpretation, um, it very much has to do with Christian theology. It very much has to do with how do you interpret Scripture. Okay, so that's really what we're asking is, how does one interpret the Bible correctly? We've looked at the doctrine of Revelation. We've asked, what is the Bible? We've asked, how did we get the Bible? We've talked about the canon. We've talked about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, we've talked about uh, the types of revelation that there are. There's natural revelation. There's supernatural Um, revelation. We've looked at those kinds of things. We've even talked a little bit about the history of revelation, Um, dealt a little bit with liberalism and things like that. But so now before we move on, our next major doctrine, as we're going to talk about in systematic theology, is going to be the doctrine of God. But in order for us to analyze any doctrine of scripture, we obviously have to go to scripture, right? And that presupposes that we have 
a grasp on how do we approach the scripture. Because after all, if you don't know how to interpret the scripture, any doctrine that you're going to seek to study may be suspect to some deficiency in your method of interpretation. So this is why hermeneutics uh, is so important. So turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 15, it's obviously a very famous verse. This is one of my favorite verses when I first became a Christian. I wrote it on the side of a systematic book that I, one of my first systematic books that I found. I wrote it in big uh, gangster letters, because that's how I used to write back then. I wrote 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, you know, and uh, I love this verse. Somebody want to read it for us? Some, who's there? Wally, are you there? Yeah. Okay. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's right. Uh, that's a really, really powerful text, obviously, for many reasons. Uh, one of them is because this is a, a, an imperative, right? Be diligent is a command. It's, it's, not a, it's not an option. So here is young Timothy as a young pastor, and uh, Paul is giving him instructions on how to how to, how to conduct himself in the ministry, how to execute the pastoral ministry. And, uh, <clears throat> and the first thing that he tells him that he needs to do is that he needs to be diligent, which means that there's a lot of hard work involved in um, being a pastor, but specifically in this context, dealing with the concept of handling the Bible. There's great diligence that goes on with that. I mean, what, what is this verse right here? What does this speak to a lot of... You know, a lot of pastors who sadly put no time or effort into interpreting the Word of God. Uh, sadly today, you know, um, um, you know, a lot of pastors will go onto a website, download a sermon, and just kind of repeat the sermon outline, you know. It's not even their own sermon. They just kind of, oh, this is what's really growing people's churches. So I'm going to go download Rick Warren's sermon, you know, and I'm going to go preach that. I'll never forget, you know. Our previous church, one of our deacons ended up coming to our church precisely because of that. He, he discovered that his pastor was preaching someone else's sermons and downloading them off the Internet, paying 15 bucks or whatever, getting the notes and then getting up on stage and acting as if they were his. I mean, this is the world we live in. You know, this is the kind of ministry that people and thousands of people go to churches like this. It's just amazing. But, uh, but no, um, you know, Scripture teaches the complete opposite. We are to be diligent, work hard, um, to do what? Well, he says, number one, to present yourself approved to God. And so hermeneutics, as I think this verse is definitely contributing to, first and foremost, hermeneutics is done to the glory of God. First of all, it is done in such a way that we, we, we invoke God's blessing. We, we want God's blessing. I know that, you know, that's kind of the fear of handling the Word of God as a pastor. You really take it serious. It's you realizing, I hope that I did what's right in the eyes of God. I hope I handled God's Word accurately. You know, I was talking with someone uh, recently about, you know, what I call sermon remorse. You know, I'm sure many preachers deal with it. I deal with it very strongly. You know, I'll preach a sermon and feel like I didn't handle the word right. And, and, and somewhere in the midst of warfare and, and just spiritual warfare and things like that, you know, I could get very discouraged about my preaching and think, oh, boy, that's, a, that's the last time I'll ever preach. You know what I mean? Because I thought I didn't handle the word of God like I should have. 
you know, and, and, and certainly the enemy can use that, but it just goes to show that, you know, when you handle the Word of God, you have to take it very serious, because this is God's holy Word, and uh, so you want to seek to be approved to God, first and foremost. You know, uh, I, I really appreciate when people come up to me and say, hey, that was a great sermon. I was so encouraged today. But I tell you what, what encourages me more than anything is 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 the knowledge that I did what God wanted me to do. I, I said what the Word of God says, and Hopefully God was pleased with my, my, my preaching, you know, because that's so important. But, uh, but he says here, you know, that we are to be approved to God. And the analogy is a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So here, the, the, the interpreter, okay, and by extension, folks, this means every one of us here, not just the pastor, but every one of us who handles the word of God and divides the word of God. Okay, you're like a workman. You're like a you're like an architect. You're like a you're like a construction worker that's building something. Let's say especially you're building like a foundation, right? And you want to you want to build skillfully and carefully. You want to make sure your plumb lines are perfect. You want to make sure the foundation is right because you're going to build on this foundation. And if the foundation is not good, I mean, you know what happens. You know, uh, Texas is notorious for bad foundations, right? And we know what happens in houses that have bad foundations. You start seeing the bricks cracking, right? Separation, all of that. You got all these nail pops in the house. It's not good to have a bad foundation. And so in the same way, as a skilled workman, we need to have a proper biblical foundation. And he uses this Greek word here, accurately handling the word of truth. And that word to accurately handle is the word that literally means to cut in a straight path. To, to cut in a straight path. And that's what it is. It's like you're looking at a plumb line and you're making sure that your hermeneutics, your interpretation is all, it's, everything lines up, everything is straight. Okay? And uh, that's what we wanted to do here. We want to lay a right foundation. Um, uh, you know, if your starting point is off, what do you think is going to happen to the result, right? Your plumb line is off. You know, if you've measured something like in construction and you're trying to set a plumb line for a fence or a foundation or something like that, by the time you get to the end, it's going to be off the path and you're going to veer off. You know, so the analogy here is, has to do with either orthodoxy or heterodoxy. Orthodoxy being that which is sound, that which is doctrinally acceptable. And then heterodox from heteros, which means other, means other than what is sound, other than what is right. So ultimately leading to heresy. So, um, so important. I'm just trying to stress to us the need for biblical interpretation and for the need to do it right. Um, maybe another text that we can go to is uh, Acts chapter 17. And this kind of brings it home to every one of us. Because there, you know, people can look at that and say, yeah, well, that's a pastor's job, you know. The pastor is the one that really has to be concerned to handle the word of God accurately. But all of us, you know, we just kind of listen to what the pastor says. That is not true. Every one of you has a pastoral duty, if you would, with the word of God. You each have to uh, be uh, careful uh, to be interpreting scripture correctly, and to have a biblical hermeneutic, and to have sound hermeneutics, rather. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, obviously a well-known 
passage of scripture, but just stresses the need to have good hermeneutics. It says, now these were more noble-minded, speaking of the Thessalonians, those who were in Thessalonica, for they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And so what I'm saying is that that passage of scripture presupposes that the Thessalonians were handling the word of God accurately enough, so accurately, that they were able to test the apostles' writings and words with the already received scriptures of the Old Testament to see, is what Paul, is what Peter is preaching, is that biblical? Does that light up? You see? So they, they, they collectively were very concerned to interpret the word of God uh, correctly. Uh, what are some of the consequences of lacking good hermeneutics? Well, I think we've already pointed out some, but uh, especially for people that want to teach or preach the Word of God, I mean, James has this, has this warning for every one of us. It says, uh, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so by handling the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, uh, especially as teachers, you can incur a stricter judgment. Now, what do you think that means? Is it a judgment before God, or is it a judgment before man? Is it that you fear the judgment of man, or you fear the judgment of God? Which is it, Mr. James, Mr. Expositor of the Book of James? I've always naturally thought it's a judgment before God, you know. That's what I've always naturally leaned towards, but I can't remember all the context. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it is, but I mean, I fear God more than man, so the judgment of man, it wouldn't be that big of a threat to me, but. Sure. You know. Yeah. Anybody want to take a, the opposite position on that? I wouldn't say opposite, but both. Okay, good. Just because if you're teaching, if I'm not teaching, I can't really receive any judgment from the, peop from the people in the congregation, whereas if I am teaching, I can receive either accolades or get out <laughs> you know yeah. so they're they're in a sense judging you hopefully they're judging you rightly right and so with that strictness or there should be strictness i can be asked to step down i can i can actually even receive discipline for improper teaching right wow i better be careful of this guy <laughs> i better teach what's right man <laughs> yeah but jason's right he has a high view of preaching and teaching he knows that Look, if you're going to stand up and preach and teach the Word of God, you have to be held to a high account. And if you deviate from the biblical, you know, from any, especially essential, right? Like, especially if you're teaching heresy. I mean, we may not disagree with every article of interpretation. We might have a different look at a different passage or something like that. There's so many exegetical decisions that need to be made. But at the end of the day, if you're not teaching, teaching orthodoxy, if you're not teaching the gospel, you know what I mean? Definitely, your, 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 your ministry then becomes very suspect. You know what I mean? I mean, I knew a, min I knew a pastor that got in trouble for plagiarizing. And, and, and uh, at a very high level, he was plagiarizing a really well-known reformed uh, pastor and author. And uh, he was disciplined in his church. He, had, he was disqualified. He had to step down because for years he was stealing somebody's sermons. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just uh, again, it's just amazing, you know, how much accountability there is and handling the Word of God. Um, so, yes, I, I, I think Jason's right. I think Chris is right. I think if you're going to teach the Word of God, definitely you can expect a stricter judgment from man, right? Because you're putting yourself up there as a teacher over man. 
So if you teach something that's off, man has the, I think they have the right, almost a duty to keep you accountable and to judge what you're saying and to uh, judge you stricter than they judge other people in the congregation because of that exact issue. That's why, Paul, that's why James says, look, let not many of you become teachers. It's just amazing how many people in the church want to teach, want to preach, you know, and that's a good thing, right? But there, this is a good balancing verse, right, to kind of taper the zeal of, of some that, you know, like, you know, just zealously want to step into that position and, and uh, but they haven't really maybe thought it through or they're not doing it with a lot of counsel, you know what I mean? Um, I can go on and on about that. Uh, the other one, uh, turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, because that's with the individual. But also, if you don't have good hermeneutics, it can also have consequences, not just on the individual, but on the community at large. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, for example, uh, beginning in verse 16. It says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already taken place. They upset the faith of some. Isn't that amazing? So they're just kind of showing the principle that what you teach doesn't just affect you, but it can actually affect upset the faith of some, unsettle their faith. In other words, causes them to doubt their faith, erodes their faith. Um, ultimately, that's talking about apostasy, that it can lead to apostasy. You know, I've seen it. I've told this story many times, you know, but I've seen this, you know, I've seen this firsthand. I see, I've seen a whole congregation become infiltrated by uh, Eastern Orthodox teaching. And uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, you know, it's kind of like Catholicism, but without a pope. They have their traditions, they pray to saints, they, you know, they, they, they have a deficient view, I think, of justification. They have a deficient view of the gospel, ultimately, because they believe in salvation by works, you know, a, 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 you know, a synthesis of works and grace coming together to produce salvation. And I've seen so many people that ran off to Eastern Orthodoxy no longer walking with God, no longer even in the Christian faith. So, you know, it's just important, you know, to, to know that, that, that false doctrine has an impact on the whole church, on the broader community. That's why as pastors, we have to be very careful, vigilant to oversee and to protect the flock. So that if we hear people preaching or teaching aberrant theology, you know what I mean? Not just a different perspective on this or that, but dangerous, aberrant theology, contrary to the gospel. It is our job to go over there and to, you know, put a stop to that kind of that kind of thing. Um, Peter, Second Peter, chapter three. I'm just giving you some of the classic texts on why hermeneutics is so important. Second Peter, chapter three, and that just and this here, you know, is a is a warning not just to false teachers, but should be a warning to all of us. Be very careful how we handle the word of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 says, As also in all his letters, talking about Paul, Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 16. He's, he's speaking about Paul, and he says, In his letters, speaking in them of these things, especially of eschatological things, he says, In which are some things hard to understand. 
Okay, so let's be honest. There are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand, difficult, you know. Uh, and he says, he says, uh, which the untaught, now watch this very carefully, the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction, apalumi, to their own destruction. And what's interesting to me is, well, several things I think you can point out from this passage in Peter. Number one, that the more difficult texts are often the occasion of heresy. It's, 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 it's you know, it's a lot of times it's in the difficult passages of Scripture that heretics like to hang out and twist and confuse people with because they're maybe harder to understand. Um, and also on top of that, I want you to notice the... the um, I want you to notice the close association between character and cognition. I love to keep those letters, you know, the symmetry there. So character and cognitive skill. He says untaught and unstable. The word unstable literally speaks of a person that has character flaws. Isn't that amazing? Peter is saying... Be careful with people that have a walk that does not conform to godliness. Because if it doesn't conform to godliness and coupled together with the fact that they are untaught, meaning they're not trained in the word of God, be careful with those kinds of people because they will twist and distort the scripture. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like, look, it's just not enough to know a bunch of stuff about the Bible. That's what I love about this verse. It's not enough just to say, you know, you've studied hermeneutics, you know Greek and Hebrew, you, you have commentaries, you know, you've done all these things, right? But it's also on top of that, having a life that is in conformity with the things that you know. Uh, that, that's the thing. You know, that's why Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, discipline yourself unto godliness, uh, you know, Maybe a, a corresponding passage. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the sad thing is, is like when I was in the, the radical Pentecostal church, yeah. you know, in my, in my early 20s, and when I, I was going to one of the pastors and bringing different scriptures to try to understand why we would do things, right. you know, like slain in the spirit, I wanted to know biblically if they could show me why we did that practice. Or speaking in tongues out loud with no interpretation or anything, well, you know, why we did that and why it was okay for women to teach, you know, men, which, you know, you know, and so, so when I, when I went, it was almost like, um, then they, they twisted the scripture in Galatians 5 and they said, who bewitched you? They told me that. Who bewitched you? <laughs> Who's you been know, sowing seeds of doubt in your mind? And, and just because I wanted to know more. That's right. You know, to be able to Who's bewitched you to be like a, Thess a noble Thessalonian? Yeah, to defend why, why you know, and, the, and so when you read that about untaught, you know, in Second, second Peter there, which the untaught... That's right, a Berean. We should want to be taught. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. wrong to... We should know why we believe what we believe. And so that's when there was a huge red flag that went off. You know, and then so they did give me scriptures to defend their position, and I went back and looked at them, and they were out of context, completely out of context. That's what I knew. I needed to run for the hills. <laughs> you know, but it was hard. And then you know what they told me? Because I was going to leave that church to go to Calvary Chapel, 
And you know the, what the pastor told me? Uh -huh. He said, you'll never become all that God want, wants you to be if you go to that church. You'll never have the That's right. You'll never have the fivefold ministry. You'll never be a prophet. You know, prophet you'll never be an evangelist, pastor, a pastor. Teacher. <laughs> Reverend Apostle. <coughs> an apostle. Yeah, Apostle Trisha, you know. Trisha. You imagine that. I wanted. <laughs> I wanted that because I wanted all that God had. But but you know, then when the Lord was showing me through through His Word, it just started changing me. I mean, how wrong I was. I was really washing my brain rightly, whereas I was brainwashed wrongly, almost cultish. And then to leave that made me feel like, wow, you know. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well, that's that's right. That's right. And and let me say this about you know character and you know we're talking about you know not just theology doctrine and care but character also let me say this teaching false doctrine is a character flaw that's another thing we have to understand mm -hmm. it is a character flaw that is a moral problem that you are teaching heresy i don't know if there's a greater evil in the world than to teach heresy because you're damning someone's soul, especially if it's heret I mean, damnable heresy. I mean, you know, what could be worse than you being the instrument through which a person goes to perdition? I don't think there's anything worse than that. So, 1 Timothy 4.16, very important, right? It says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Now, pay close attention to yourself. What do you think that means? Anyone? Huh? His walk. His walk? Well, what do you mean by that? His gait? His godliness, like what we've been talking about. <laughs> what did you say? His gait, how the way he walks. How the way he walks, no. Yeah, his godliness. Okay. Does he do it when he preaches? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So pay, pay close attention to yourself. I mean, this calls for self-introspection and self-examination. And uh, just as much as, you know, say, uh, you know, pay close attention to your teaching, a lot of people will be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You're going to be careful of that, man. Yeah, study hermeneutics, Greek, Hebrew, all of that. You know what I mean? With the same type of diligence, you should also pay close attention to yourself, to your, to your walk, to your godliness, to, to your character, all of that. And um, that's why he's and, – and, and notice the consequence. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Isn't that amazing? This is what this is what accompanies genuine salvation. Is 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 uh, for, for for Timothy here as a pastor. He's saying, look, if you keep a close watch on yourself and you and on your doctrine, guess what? You have a really good surety that you are going to be saved, and that those who hear you are going to be saved, right? Because you're not going to deviate from orthodoxy. Right? So these are the attending circumstances of genuine. Salvation. I love it. Character and theology. Right? Together. And uh, maybe just a third thing uh, back in Second Peter. It says, Scripture can be distorted that it can, and it can lead to spiritual ruin and perdition. That's, I mean, obviously, that's ultimately the big one. Second Peter 3.16. Again, these people distort the Scripture as they do the rest of the Scripture to their own destruction. Twisting the scripture, therefore, to their own destruction. Okay, so this is why, this is just some of the reasons why we have to have good hermeneutics. Now, what is the purpose of hermeneutics? The purpose of hermeneutics is to sound really smart, right? No, of course not. Uh, the purpose of hermeneutics is so that you can critique what everybody else around you is saying or believing. Good hermeneutics is so that you can spot the flaws in the pastor's sermon. 
Those are secondary effects. Okay, all right, I'll give you that. I would say hermeneutics ultimately is for spiritual progress. Spiritual progress. That is why, even here, Second Peter chapter 3, Paul, uh, Peter goes on to say, You therefore, beloved, knowing beforehand, be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your steadfastness. But in order in in the process of combating false teaching grow he says in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ so so they're coupling together good hermeneutics for the purpose of spiritual growth that's what it's all about second uh, timothy chapter 3 just give you a few a few uh, bullet points on this okay so that is obviously peter talking to the 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 the, the uh, Churches in the diaspora that were scattered abroad. Second Timothy three sixteen is talking to mainly Paul is thinking pastorally. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. So that here's the purpose: so that the men of God can be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see that? So good, good hermeneutics should lead to spiritual productivity. So that you can be productive in your spiritual life. Not just smart, but put your smarts to work. You know, get to work. Uh, do good works. Every good work. You should be equipped for every good work. Uh, and then uh, Ephesians chapter 4. This lands on every one of us. Whether you are in ministry or pastoring or not. This lands on every one of us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 11. It says that Christ gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So why do saints need to be equipped with good hermeneutics? For the work of service, for spiritual service. That's why. That's why we need to do it. So now, going on from... What is it for? What is the aim of good hermeneutics? Why we need it? What are the consequences if you don't have it? Moving on from there to actually, to actually dealing with hermeneutics itself. So when we're dealing with, with hermeneutics, I want to I wanna operate in the next few weeks off of uh, a threefold uh, division of hermeneutics where hermeneutics consists of history, literature, boy, Literature and theology. And we're going to have different points under each one of these, okay? Um, but this is basic, this is a good way, I think, to look at the hermeneutical, um, you know, to, the study of hermeneutics, to, to see that in order to have good hermeneutics, you have to think of this threefold division of what hermeneutics is focused upon. The first one has to do with history. Now, when I say history, what do you think I'm talking about? When I say history has to do with hermeneutics, what history do you think I'm talking about? It could be several things. It could be cultural norms or idioms. Okay, so culture. Okay. Uh, uh, history. Idioms? Yeah, idioms. Uh, well, idioms. Yeah, it might be more literature, but yeah, 
it kind of in the culture you'll see the idioms okay. flushed out. So like yeah. the Stoics and Romans or you see Epicurean type stuff. Okay. Uh, All right. Anything else? Church history. Interpretation over church history. Okay. Yeah. So that would be a little bit different. I would say I would put that over here under theology, which is what Pastor Chris is talking about, which is historical theology. That is the study of church history. Okay. Anybody else? Anything else? That goes under the historical. Yes, sir. Well, I guess I mean. I I, don't, I mean, you can put it kind of in each category, but when I'm studying, let's say, a word, I want to know the history of that word. How has it been used previously and now? Is it okay. the same? So sure. I'm studying the history of a word. So the history of the word, that's called etymology. I can follow literature. Right? Etymology. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That can kind, kind of, of intersect, you know. That means it's intersecting. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's right. That's good, right? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and I would say culture is a big one. Characters, um, main like kings, provinces. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we'll come back to this, but we're dealing with history and interpretation of the Bible. What we want to do is we want to understand what is the the historical background of any book. So if you study a book, like let's say you're studying Ecclesiastes, okay, how does Ecclesiastes differ from the Book of Romans? Well, I'll tell you what your historical background is going to have a lot to do with how you interpret each one of those books because they are wildly different, right? I would say even within the New Testament, how you look at the book of Romans versus the book of Hebrews has everything to do with historical background, recognizing and understanding that, you know, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, he's writing in a Greco-Roman worldview, He's writing to a, a people that live and are dominated by Greco-Roman culture, whereas the book of Hebrews is primarily concerned with Jewish culture, with Jewish with the Jewish worldview, with a Jewish understanding of reality and of life and of ethics and all of that. Um, that's why in the book of Romans, I mean, Paul is not belaboring the, the, the idea of the Levitical system, of the priesthood, um, of the different ceremonial laws and all of those things. Because in Rome, he's coming at things much more from a Greco-Roman perspective. And that's just some of the ways that it will, uh, it will uh, affect your interpretation. Uh, really, if you want to expand the, the notion of history, it's historical, cultural, sociological which means you take into account what is going on in society at that time. It is political and it is economic. And that is what hermeneutics textbooks are talking about when they're talking about understanding hermeneutics in terms of history. You're taking economics, economics, economics into account. You're taking social factors into account and what's going on in the world at that time. All of those things like have... Like slavery and stuff like that? I mean, how it affects... Yes, people. absolutely. I mean, let me just give you another example. For example, if you look at uh, the Corinthian culture, the Corinthian culture obviously is, you know, renowned for its immorality. It's renowned for its, for its sophistry. It's renowned for... Uh, for Greek philosophy and rhetoric, right? 
So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Okay. In the Corinthian culture, philosophy and rhetoric played a huge role in society. Uh, there would be rhetoricians. Is that how you say that? People who would literally stand on the corner trying to pawn off their philosophy based on how rhetorical their rhetorical skill, their sophistry, and their eloquence, and to see how the, and their masterful use of language. And this way, you'd come, wow, this is an incredibly eloquent teacher. This guy understands rhetoric, logic. This, guy's a, you know, this guy has a real grasp on these sorts of things, and he could develop a following that way. Well, when you look at Paul's words in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it makes more sense when you think about that. That that is what the, what, what the Corinthian culture was pawning off as wisdom. Wisdom. That's why Paul says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. See, if we don't have the historical background of this book, and we just simply come here and look at superior speech, you may think, wait a minute, but Paul has pretty good speech. <laughs> I mean, Paul, I mean, some of his, you know, language he uses in Romans and Galatians and some of his language, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty astute Greek speaker. Uh, Certainly he's not inferior, is he? So what he's talking about there, again, is this whole cultural context of how the Greek language was being used for, for, for the philosopher's end. That's what he's talking about. He says the superiority of speech or wisdom. You might say, wait a minute. So Paul is saying his words are not wise? Of course not. But you've got to understand that the cultural milieu defined wisdom as mainly pertaining to man's wisdom, his, uh, his human abilities in rhetoric, okay, those types of things, uh, philosophical wisdom. You gotta remember, at the in the first century, Platonism is still very much relevant. Platonic thought, okay, the, the, the philosophy of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, all the Greek philosophers, that, that still has a very big bearing upon the world of the New Testament. And uh, in the first century, that was most expressed in two heresies. Docetism, Gnosticism. Those two heresies were, they were, they were side by side with the New Testament authors and their world. I think that when you look at the book of 1 John, okay, that was written, probably one of the latest books in the Bible written, most say it was written probably in the mid-80s, there, there's almost no doubt that John is interacting with docetism and Gnosticism. Docetism was the idea that Jesus did not physically come to earth, that Jesus Christ was not a physical, they're Christian heresies, that by the time these philosophies crept into the church, the manifestation of those things were that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh, that he simply appeared. So docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. It seemed as if Jesus came in the flesh. Okay? It appeared that way, but he really didn't come in the flesh. 
Why didn't he come in the flesh? Does anybody know? Because under Platonic thought, matter is evil. So if Jesus, the Holy Son of God, is indeed a holy son of God, he could never take on flesh because Plato has already taught us flesh is evil. You see? So he appeared to be there, but he wasn't actually there. Okay? Uh, that's why John, if you go to the book of 1 John, jumping around a little bit here, sorry guys, but if you go to the book of 1 John, I think this is one of the reasons why 1 John begins the way that it does. Okay? Begins the way that it does. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, notice the emphasis on empirical evidence, what you can feel, taste, touch, sense, what we have looked at and our hands and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, why in the world does, the, does John feel the need to have to say that he touched the word of life with his hands <laughs> to stress that he came in the flesh. As a matter of fact, the book of First John, it actually goes on to say, chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is when he says, does not confess Jesus, that it means in the flesh. So these are kind of appositional statements. In the flesh is not from God. You see, concurrent with the, first, the book of 1 John is the heresy of docetism. The idea that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh. He was like a phantasm. He just appeared like a demigod. Yes, sir? We see that in, in the Gospel of John, too, in some of his writings. Would you say that some of the stuff yeah, he's combating? I think so. Yep. Yep. Because to say that someone came in the flesh, even in the first century, is kind of an odd way of speaking. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, commentators have described it as a very crude way to define somebody's humanity. It's like the authors are really trying to get something across there. They're trying to really stress that Jesus had real skin and bones, right? Jesus said, look, I'm not a ghost, remember? He's walking on the water. He said, look, I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and blood. I have bones, you know? I'm a real person, you know? Thomas, reach into my side and touch my wounds, right? So in every way, Jesus is real. But, but that's really important. Especially the historical aspect of that, understanding that these are the, the heresies. Gnosticism is also a Platonic thought. Gnosticism is rooted in the idea that, that salvation is based on a, a, a cryptic knowledge, that, 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 that salvation is based on a higher knowledge, that you have to come into a hidden secret knowledge, okay, of only a few people have, and that through contemplation and through certain you know uh, spiritual exercises you can arrive at this hidden secret knowledge that type of idea is still alive very uh, today right it's everywhere uh, it's in it's in christian mysticism everywhere i mean i picked up that horrific book jesus calling have you guys seen that in the bookstores yeah. jesus calling the little book you know looks real pretty nothing pretty about it I picked it up, and the girl, the lady is talking about Jesus actually audibly talking to her, 
and giving her direct revelation and special messages just for her. Oh, we got to go read Jesus' call because this lady, she has a special word from Jesus. She has real intimate knowledge of Jesus that the rest of us, we just don't have. You see, that's a form of Gnosticism, you know? So, so this is why it's important to look at the historical background and all of these types of things. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, next week as well. Any questions or statements or comments or anything like that? No one? Sure? Now, maybe before we leave his, uh, this aspect here, talking about interpreting the Bible, knowing the culture, knowing the background, you're asking questions like, what was going on when that book was written? What was the historical developments? Maybe historically, too. What, what, what are the developments in biblical history at that time? What are the redemptive historical developments in that book, what has transpired by the time that this book is writing, is being written, you see? A big debate is like Galatians. Was it written before or after the Council of Jerusalem? You know, those are all historical questions, intra-scriptural questions within the Bible itself. Uh, economic situation also plays a big role in what is going on there at the time. The social, the, the socio-economical a situation of a culture has a lot to do with the interpretation of a book. That's why, for example, in the book of Philemon, Paul does not, does not teach the believers to revolt against slavery. Because in a, in a, in a culture where the, 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 the socioeconomic situation is that slavery is part of the fabric of the society, Okay, then you can then you can understand why Paul is not calling the church to overthrow the Roman government to stop slavery. See, but for us, after the civil rights movement, for us, as you know, citizens of this great country, right, we have we have slavery in our minds and we think a certain thing about what slavery was during the civil rights movement and all of that, but it's wildly different to what was going on in New Testament times. See, all of those things play a massive role on how you interpret Scripture. Yeah. Is everybody ready to interpret Scripture? <laughs> right? I don't want to make it sound like it's harder than it is because it's not. Next week, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the literary use of the Bible and, and hopefully try to point out to you at the same time that we can do all these wonderful things that can enhance our ability to interpret the Bible, interpreting the Bible is easy enough that any of us can do it. Okay. You had a question? Yeah, I was just wondering, did you mention any books that could be used to understand that and try to practically apply that? Yeah, there's a, there's a hermeneutics book by this guy, uh, this guy's name. Kostenberger, and that's how you do the O. I think we should link for it. Huh? Kostenberger, if you find his book on hermeneutics, it's actually really simple. His name sounds harder than the book. You know, <laughs> you know don't let his name intimidate you, but Andreas Kostenberger, his book on hermeneutics is really well written, very clear, uh, just a very readable. You don't have to be a scholar to read it, but you're getting a really good hermeneutics manual. There are many, 
you know. But um, that's all the time that we have. So uh, let's close. And uh, Lord willing, next week we'll go on and deal and try to look at the literature of Scripture, so that so we can um, we can add that to our hermeneutics. Literature is very important, man. The Bible is really amazing. I hope, above everything, I hope that that's what you walk away with week after week is, I wish more people were here to hear this because the Bible is such an amazing book. I hope that's what we walk away with each and every week. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you for uh, this time. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, Lord. We thank you for giving us the, the, the word of God that is so amazing. It's so intricate and uh, it's so genius. And yet at the same time, Lord, you don't have to be a genius to read the word of God, to understand the word of God and to apply the word of God to your life. And so I just pray you give us the right balance of those who wanna work diligently to be unashamed as good works, workmen that uh, rightly divide your word. And at the same, same time, Lord, that uh, each one of us would know the access that we have to your word, Father. Thank you for giving us your word and help us as we continue to study hermeneutics. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.